I'm sure that it, uh, for some of you at least, feels like we're on this confusing and hopefully at times amazing adventure. Like if you were to travel to a place you haven't been before. But there's something about this taking the hands off the steering wheel and dropping our you know, meditation habits to bring the attention here or try to make something happen in the mind like calm or peacefulness. There's something scary even for me today, I'm assuming for some of you, about being given the instruction just to be aware. Or it's not even so much that we're being aware or we're doing the awareness, but we're remembering there is awareness. The mind is knowing. So I often think to myself, and uh, experience seems like it's a little wild, And it always feels like it needs a parent. (laughs) I don't know if it feels that way to you. Somebody's got to get this thing organized. (laughs) You know, but if, if we remember, then we remember that's just something being known too. The desire for a parent in the room will finally get things organized and get us on the right track. Sometimes I think about it in terms as I might, as a, I imagine a naturalist might enter into a new environment and uh, just studying how the different species, the plants and animals and insects, the different animate and inanimate things interact and support each other and just that careful, continuous observation about how it all is unfolding there in the woods, there in the marsh, in the sea, or wherever that scientist, that naturalist might be observing. And this is really our refuge. You know, when we talked that first night, uh, I think Carol spoke about the refuges, Buddha and Dhamma, Buddha knows Dhamma, this wakefulness, this potential to be open, to be awake, knows the way that it is, here and now, immediately. There's a beautiful chant that um, nuns and monks do in the Theravada tradition. It's sort of an interesting thing to be devoted to, you know, the way it is. Devoted to being awake, taking refuge in being awake, being open, seeing things as they are. And there's some kind of confidence that that intimacy will be revealing what we need to see, onward leading, as it said. This is from Ajahn Sumedho's book, The Mind in the Way. He's a senior monk in the, a Western monk in the, Theravada tradition, the Thai force tradition. 
And in this book, uh, he's talking about the refuges in this chapter, and he writes, meditation is the way of opening to Dhamma. You're opening to the truth, not an intellectual truth, but the way it is, the conditions here and now, the underlying nature of conditions, the underlying nature of the mind that knows the conditions. So he continues writing, so when we chant about Dhamma, we say that it is apparent here and now, timeless, encouraging investigation. That's that phrase I mentioned the other night, ehipasiko. He goes on, leading to liberation, to be experienced for oneself and realizable by the wise. These are the words that point to the here and now. When we're opening to truth, we're not looking for anything in particular, like focusing on one object and saying, is this the truth? Opening to the truth is opening the mind rather than focusing on one thing. So when we take refuge in Buddha and Dhamma, that reminds us to be in this state of alert attention. We're not trying to concentrate on this and get rid of that. We're not getting caught in the habits of indulgence and suppression. When we do open, when we learn how to open ourselves here and now, then we begin to experience peacefulness because we're not looking for any particular thing to attach to. We're not running about anymore. We're stopping the frantic running. So opening to Dhamma is the way to peacefulness, which we have to realize for ourselves. We have to realize the truth for ourselves. It's not a matter of waiting around for somebody else to realize the truth for us or to tell us what it is. And I think a lot of us, you know, who at one point or another dug into the teachings of the Buddha found it really appealing, this emphasis on independence or self-reliance. And even in terms of morality, what's skillful and what's unskillful, it isn't handed down. I mean, we're given pointing, pointed, you know, it's pointed out what other people have found to be skillful and are, are unskillful, but it's really for each of us in observing and being open to the mind to sense what qualities of mind are setting in motion tension, are tight and set in motion tightness, and what qualities of mind have the flavor of release and seem to be setting emotion release. And this is really our ecosystem that we're studying. We're observing the mind. I mean, we, of course, will be aware of sounds and sensations and sights and smells and tastes. But it's really this inner environment of skillfulness and unskillfulness that is our true training ground. We're cultivating the stability of present moment awareness to deepen this understanding, our own, this understanding that's real for us here and now in our own heart about what's skillful and unskillful. And of course, we find it really um, 
conducive of faith and energy when we talk to our Dharma friends or read what the Buddha or otherwise folks before us have said because what we're confirming in our own direct, immediate experience is what other people have found to be true. So tonight I want to talk about this internal mapping of what is skillful and unskillful. And it's not so much that we're trying to see what's skillful or unskillful. We're just recognizing, right, the way it is, what's being known. The knowing mind, awareness, that capacity is already here. And it gets stronger and more stable because we train ourselves to remember, to recognize it. That's really the muscle we're developing. We're remembering to recognize this quality of mind we call awareness. That there is awareness, and awareness is knowing what's here and now. And to the degree that we can begin to sustain some of that present moment awareness, then the mind begins to comprehend what's skillful and unskillful, simply because there's that clear, relatively stable presence that's observing how things are unfolding. Oh, this heart's going to hell. Things are getting really tight and entangled and heavy and hard to bear. I guess this is what they mean by unskillful, right? So it isn't rocket science. It's just a matter of having this reflective presence that sees that sometimes the heart, the mind cycles into really difficult states. It relates in ways, relates to the present moment in ways that are tight and set in motion more tightness. And other times the mind relates in skillful ways. We're relating to whatever's happening in the present moment with kindness, for example. And that feels good. There's something, even if we're opening to something that's painful, but we're relating, we're aware of it in a skillful way, that feels good. Maybe subtle, but it feels good. And it sets something good in motion. It becomes more and more the inclination of the mind. This is from Saida Utejaniya, one of our teachers. Wisdom inclines toward the good, but is not attached to it. It shies away from what is not good, but has no aversion to it. And this is something we observe with awareness as well. That when there is wisdom present in the heart, that it inclines towards the good. But it doesn't take it personally. We've all seen, or many of us have seen, when the mind is relating in a wholesome way, and the heart and the body begin to settle down, maybe more calm begins to arise, more clarity, the mind is seeing more. And then we take it personally. I'm really practicing well. Well, what happens then? <laughs> right? That stability, that clarity, that deepening of understanding goes away because it was dependent on allowing things to unfold naturally. 
But when the habit of the mind to take things personally, for whatever reason, got triggered, then taking it personally is not a supporting cause for that kind of stability of mind, that kind of clarity, that kind of deepening of understanding. Taking things personally, getting attached to the meditation going well, is conducive to getting tight. It's called greed, right? Or conceit. And conceit is tight and plants seeds for more tightness. So all day long, already for the first two days, you've been, you know, whenever there were moments of awareness, enough stability, the mind, enough continuity, the mind is sort of mapping out this very basic level of wisdom. In some ways in the tradition, we're not considered a human being unless we have enough space, enough really privilege to have a stable mind, right? The conditions are safe enough, supportive enough that we've stabilized awareness so that we become a moral being. We realize some attitudes, some qualities, some ways of relating are not skillful, not conducive of well-being for myself or others. And other ways of relating, other qualities are skillful, are conducive to my well-being and the well-being of others. And just sort of a side note, you know, a lot of times we think, well, are they really the same thing? My well-being and the well-being of others. There's a wonderful response to that question by one of the, another one of the senior Thai force monks, Western Thai force monks, Ajahn Jayasaro. And this is a paraphrase, but he said something like, if you think there's a conflict between your well-being and the well-being of others, it may be that you don't understand what well-being is. It's kind of the scarcity model, like I'm feeling pretty good, but you know my feeling good depends on me having something you don't have. So that's a maybe a limited way of understanding well-being. So when we get to know more and more these qualities of the mind and begin to discern what's skillful, setting in motion my well-being and the well-being of others, and what's unskillful, undermining my well-being and undermining the well-being of others, you might, we might just get clearer how we can take care of ourselves and take care of the world too. That they're not necessarily like two paths, okay? I can take care of my kids or I can become, you know, a really devoted Buddhist practitioner. Or I can be a good partner or I can be a good Buddhist practitioner. I can be an activist and, and sort of address the injustices in the world and the real enormity of suffering and oppression that exists in our society and the world. Or I can be a good Buddhist practitioner, right? And again, that this invitation, like whenever we think that way, we might want to like take up this practice of 
of having some humility. Maybe I don't fully understand what's skillful and what's unskillful and how skillfulness, when seen clearly, really begins to address everybody's well-being. Just like unskillfulness really undermines, plants the seeds for everyone's suffering. There's a a well-known interaction that happened at the time of the Buddha, and it's sort of distinguished because it involves a lay person instead of one of the nuns or monks at the time of the Buddha. And this person's name was Chitta, and he was quite devoted to the Buddhist teachings and the practices that the Buddha taught. And he liked, uh, after the monastic folks had received their meal and eaten, they often would talk about practice together. And he'd like to go out where they were camping or practicing and just listen into their Dharma conversations. And one day he did that. And in this case, it was some monks and they were arguing about one of the areas of practice where they were reflecting on um, the sensitivity of the heart and mind, like we're sensitive to sight and sensitive to sound and sensitive to thought. And then there are objects that we're sensitive to, experiences that we experience, like sights that we see or sounds that we hear or thoughts that we think. And so they were having this debate, you know, evidently one faction thought, you know, if only we weren't so sensitive, then we wouldn't be suffering beings. And the other camp thought, no, it's not so much the sensitivity, it's the object's that are arising, the experiences that are showing up, that's the problem. If only we didn't have these experiences, you know, probably unpleasant experiences, then there wouldn't be a problem. And Chitta was just sort of there in the background listening. And for whatever reason, they had the wherewithal to ask this lay person, you know, would, I guess they knew that he was a real devoted student, a good practitioner. And so Chitta gave this simile of two ox, a black ox and a white ox. And, you know, when they pull, the ox would pull the cart, they'd be yoked together with like a wooden thing or ropes so that they would, you know, move at the same pace. And he gave this example. He said, would would it be right to say that the white ox is a fetter to the black ox or the black ox is a fetter to the white ox? And the monk said, no, that doesn't make sense. It's not like one's a problem for the other. The problem is that they're yoked together. That's the difficulty, right? That they're tied together so they've lost some of their freedom because of that yoke, that wooden thing that makes them stay together. And Chitta said, yeah, exactly right. So the problem isn't that we're sensitive as human beings and the problem isn't that we have this really never-ending flow of experience, pleasant, unpleasant, subtle, gross, experience of eye, nose, tongue, touch, sound, right, thought. We're constantly, and you really get this on retreat, impinged upon by one thing after another. It never ends. There's always one thing after another being known. But the problem isn't 
that they, we have sensitive organs, that we are a sensitive human being, nor is the problem that the particular experiences that are showing up, because that's usually what we blame. He said it's, it's really what arises in dependence on those two things, being sensitive to sense experiences. What arises in conjunction of those two things? And this is that whole realm of what we'd call skillful and unskillful qualities of mind, right? Or another way I like to think of it is how the mind is relating. We're sensitive, we're vulnerable to sense experience because we're sensitive, but what arises when we have sense contact, when we experience? What kind of attitude, what kind of qualities of mind? And what does that set in motion? There's a kind of, I think, a frightening sutta. And this is really to the point of wholesome and unwholesome roots. It's actually called the Mula Sutta, which means roots. And the Buddha is talking about the three wholesome and unwholesome roots. Let me read a little of this. Practitioners, there are three roots of what is unskillful. Which three? Greed is a root of what is unskillful. Aversion is a root of what is unskillful. Delusion is a root of what is unskillful. Greed, aversion, delusion itself is unskillful. Whatever a greedy mind, an aversive mind, a deluded mind fabricates, through its actions, speech, or thoughts, that too is unskillful. So whatever is born out of that attitude in the mind, the greedy attitude, the aversive, which by the way would include fear, or deluded, confused, disconnected, in denial. So when those qualities are there, then anything the mind fabricates, whatever the mind sort of, expresses out of that quality is corrupt in a sense, in the sense that it's stressful. He goes on and says, whatever suffering, a greedy person, a greedy mind, a aversive mind, a deluded mind, their mind overcome with one of these unskillful qualities, the mind consumed wrongly inflicts on another person through beating or imprisonment or confiscation or placing blame or banishment with the thought, I have power, I want power. That too is unskillful, right? So that the greed itself is a kind of power. You know, it's an organizing principle in our mind. I mean, isn't that part of the attraction to greed and to anger? We feel empowered, by that, it sort of sort of organizes a sense of self when we're really rageful, when we're really excited about what we can set in motion, who we can become, what we can get. It's like finally we've got purpose. You know, the world can be so disorganizing, and we like you know sometimes we like our politicians and other uh, leaders. You know. We want them to have that shine of certainty about 
you know, the sort of fixed ideas. Are, and often what allows that mind to be so organized, so fixed, so certain, is these uh, animating qualities of greed and aversion. And we, we know that experience where we can fabricate something in our mind and it's totally enchanting. How many hours today, right? Did we have some enchanting, either rageful drama going or exciting drama about how you're going to fix your life, something involving greed? Are you going to fix something or become someone or get something once and for all? And then generally that lasts for a while, but when it all implodes because somehow the mind eventually realizes it was just a fabrication, then we can have a lot of doubt and confusion and spin and delusion. Right? It's its own sort of, it's not as shiny as greed and aversion as a mind state, but it, it's, it has its own cohesion in a way in the sense that it, uh, it's supported for this deluded sense of self, self-centeredness, self-centered drama. So the Buddha goes on just talking about, you know, this enveloping quality of these unskillful qualities. He's basically doing the same thing for each. I just added, I put all three together. But here's the important part of this discourse. He uses this very powerful simile. I think it's um, the seeds that he's referring to are related to the fig tree. Let me just read this part a little later down. A person like this, their mind overcome with unskillful qualities, born of greed, born of aversion, born of delusion, their mind consumed, dwells in suffering right in the here and now, feeling threatened, turbulent, feverish, right? And he goes on with the simile, just as the salt tree, a birch tree or an aspen tree when smothered and surrounded by the by parasitic vines, right? So in Asia, you know, there's this particular vine that has small seeds and, you know, the seed is in the middle of a little fruit that the birds like and then they poop in the branch of a big old tree and then this vine will start growing right there on the branch and eventually send roots down, even, you know, many, many, many feet down till it hits the earth. And it, they're called these spreading vines. So over many years, that vine can completely take over the tree. So you can't see any part of the original tree that that vine originally started to grow on. And this is the image the Buddha uses for these unwholesome, unskillful qualities of mind. All the different expressions of greed, all the different expressions of aversion, and all the different expressions of delusion. And this is something that I'm, I'm guessing we're all seeing, have been seeing for a while in our minds, where we take a very innocent turn, you know, a few of us were standing out watching the sun, feeling a little warmth from the sunshine. But it's very easy just with the pleasantness of the sunshine and the view of the hills 
to just for my kind of mind to have a thought, this would be a nice place for a cabin. <laughs> right? And then, and, that, and then like that idea which arises in the mind of that image, mental image, then there's a liking, yeah, that's a nice image. Right? That's the next mind moment. Yeah, that's a nice image. And then it's like the, the process begins because then like, oh yeah, and there would be a porch. <laughs> and when there are no bugs, there'd be a porch with no screen, but there'd need to be a porch with a screen for the fly season, right? Like June, when there are a lot of biting flies. You know? And then you'd need this, and it would go on. And every time the mind could imagine something it would want, but then eventually the whole construction, the whole fabrication, because it's diluted, it's not really happening, right? It gets weightful and we begin to suffer. Now, we know what happens when it does implode. It's a yucky feeling. So what does the mind do? It looks for something else to fabricate because it it doesn't want to feel the leftover entanglement, the leftover sort of heaviness in the heart from that promise that wasn't kept. So it unconsciously, of course, we delude ourselves again. And it might be like in an opposite direction. I'm going to become the true blue Buddhist that you know doesn't crave anything ever again. I'm not going to eat past noon. <laughs> I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Right? And then that just becomes the next fabrication. And then hopefully that implodes. Right? And we see that it was just a fabrication. And in one of the suttas, I, I don't have here, so I can't really even paraphrase it well, but the basic idea is how many cycles of this sort of stressful activity have we gone through? And the Buddha might suggest a number of times that we can't even fathom. We have been constructing something and then feeling the unpleasant result of what we constructed and dropping it, but then feeling empty and not in a Buddhist sense and reconstructing something on and on. And this is a lot of the insight we have when we're doing this retreat, precisely because we're not trying to focus the attention we observe the mind seeking happiness in ways that don't deliver happiness. Isn't that true today? Did you observe your mind trying to be happy in ways that didn't deliver happiness? Even little things like moving the body feels good for a few moments, and then we're worse off, right? Or all the little sort of pathways the mind followed, hoping that something juicy or exciting, and we get just enough to draw us in, right? Because imagination is a powerful instrument in the mind. It's a deluding instrument. Our mind is so simple, it can't really tell the difference between imagining the cabin and having the cabin initially, right? Or thinking about ice cream and eating ice cream. There's something attractive, even though it's just a thought. I mean, we know it intellectually. Like you think of your favorite food, right? We know it's just a thought, but there's a little tug. But it's just a thought. 
And the same thing if we start thinking about the monsters in our lives, the scary things, the unfinished to-do list, the interaction we need to have, the difficult interaction we need to have. But that's just a thought too. But we get enveloped like these vines, they spread. And it's animated by greed and aversion, mostly. Right? Delusion is sort of the root, ignorance, delusion is sort of the root cause, misperceiving. And basically like misperceiving or uh, uh, not understanding that there are skillful and unskillful roots. There are wholesome and unwholesome roots. There are certain qualities of mind that will never be conducive to your well-being, my well-being, anybody's well-being. So we might think that that's being handed down from up above, like God's telling us greed's bad, hatred's bad, delusion's bad. But the Buddha's teaching us, check it out and then live in accordance to what you find to be true. So if you find that whenever you notice, because you're being aware more and more often, and when you see greed, then the mind knows, oh yeah, greed is like this. And when there's enough continuity, we see what greed sets in motion. We'll see whether it's helpful in any way. If aversion, fear is helpful in any way, doesn't mean that we can get rid of it. It just means we're beginning to comprehend it. We're understanding. We're no longer lying to ourselves or pretending something is true that's not true. Oh, this is how it is. This is how it is. So one of the reasons you're gonna hear all of us up here reminding you in a lot of different ways to remember, to recognize this is being known because that, just that remembering will build the continuity of present moment awareness. And the continuity of present moment awareness allows the mind to comprehend. It's really this first powerful insight. The mind is comprehending, understanding what's skillful and unskillful. And we're becoming independent. So we become so independent that even if we read something in the Buddhist text with the Buddha saying that greed is good, hatred's good, it's like, I guess he didn't know what he was talking about because I've looked directly and I've seen what hatred is. I've seen what greed does. It's not helping me or anybody. I've observed it enough times that I have this tremendous confidence. And the same with the wholesome quality of non-greed generosity, renunciation, and non-aversion, kindness, this great devotion to not causing harm, and non-delusion. You know, really, it's really the basic practice. This is the practice of non-delusion, right? Remembering this is being known. Whatever it is, it's something being known. That's a moment of non-delusion. Right? We're not looking, we're just receiving and acknowledging, oh yeah, this is what's being felt now. I remember one of my teachers in Burma, Saida Ujanaka, would often say uh, a phrase like, uh, 
when it's really foggy out, can, can the mind be crystal clear? Oh, it's really foggy out. Right? So like even confusion, even doubt, even the murky states of mind, the awareness, right? That remembering to be aware or remembering to recognize what's being known. Oh yeah, confusion is being known. Not knowing which end is up is being known. Not having a clue whether I know what I'm doing is being known. Like Carol was saying this morning, you know, we can't, I forget how you said it, Carol, but we can't really break it, you know, the practice. Because it's whatever the mind is doing, whatever's being known, whatever's happening, the practice remains pretty simple recognizing that it's like this now. And it's not like we don't have the aspiration to be calm or to be peaceful or to deepen understanding or to realize greater freedom in our lives. We still have that aspiration. But the means to that end isn't wanting freedom, wanting calm, wanting peace, right? We don't do that. We don't practice greed for spiritual results. This is a great thing that uh, Saida Utejaniya says a lot about wisdom. Something like, wisdom is always interested in the causes. So if we want peace, wisdom is interested in what sets in motion peace. And what This is the instruction we're giving and the instructions we've received and found really useful that cultivating that habit of recognizing the present moment, regardless of what the present moment is, really sets in motion a lot of wholesomeness. It's like, and one uh, one teacher says, like when there is strong mindfulness, continuity of present moment awareness, all the other wholesome qualities begin to gather. Like, can you imagine being, really having some continuity of present moment awareness, but doing that with an attitude of anger? It's like being aware, oh yeah, it's like this, has the flavor of kindness, has the flavors of patience, clarity, breadth and depth of awareness. And then when we sustain that present moment awareness, then the comprehension can't really be stopped. So like when you notice that there's some fear, some tightness, some reactivity, instead of thinking you have to fix it, just sustain, do your best to sustain that curiosity Oh, yeah, it's like this. It's like this. Really comprehend how whatever that quality that you're sensing is unwholesome. Really see what it's setting in motion. Really see it's not helping. Really let that make an imprint, an impression on our heart. Oh, yeah, that's not helping. That's stressful. And you know how it is when we see something with clarity the mind begins to generalize, right? It really that, 
understanding spreads like, oh yeah, this isn't helpful. This is another quote from Sadhu Tejaniya. You have to use wise thinking to decide how to handle things. You cannot just try to be aware. That's not good enough. The defilements are very dominant in the mind. They are very experienced and very skillful. If you don't fully recognize them and bring in wisdom, they will take over your mind. And the wisdom here really comes from two sources. One is that continuity, right? Not forgetting, staying aware. And the other is not interpreting what's being known in the same way. And the way that Sayada often talks about this is to train our mind to frame experience as a natural process. So when we're looking at aversion or fear or you're looking at greed and you want to sustain that, then you might need to prompt yourself, is this a natural process? You know, you see your mind getting really greedy about lunch or really aversive about somebody who, you know, is for whatever reason pushing your buttons. And you're curious, right? Because you're a good practitioner and you remember it's simple. I just need to acknowledge what's being known. Well, this is what's being known. My mind's acting out. It's complaining or blaming or wanting, right? Complaining about the weather or wanting a different kind of lunch. And But the mind's curious and it's observing that pattern and it has some sustaining, like comprehending because it's sustaining this interest. Oh yeah, it's like this. Now it's like this. This is being known. And then we remember like this frame. It's really the the Buddhist or the Buddha's frame, the right view frame, that it's just a natural process. Everything's a natural process, including what feels most personal to us, right? It's just because it's some, you know, emotional pattern or mental psychological pattern doesn't mean it's somehow fundamentally different than what's going on at the pond. It's still a natural process something that's moving because of causes and conditions. And there's really no central location. It's just like many different causes and conditions interacting, and therefore the mind is like this. Now, when we look at aversion or greed as a natural process, then the mind can comprehend it in a way. There's less of that impulse to react. And that's that cycle of samsara, you know, we just dig the hole deeper. There's greed. Even when we realize the greed hurts or the aversion hurts, we tend to react to it with more greed and aversion. Like we catch ourselves complaining and then we judge ourselves as being a bad yogi, you know? And then that's so, that feels so badly that we think, God, I need, I need tea with a lot of honey. And then we feel guilty about that. And, you know, so it's like one relationship colored by greed or aversion, followed by another moment, psychological pattern colored by greed or aversion. And then it's no wonder 
that, you know, it doesn't feel good to be us. And we want to be somebody else. We, we just long for a fantasy where we're just not here for a while or sleep, right? That's sort of the go-to thing when practice isn't going well. It's either like bolt, you know, take off. Not that people do that much because we're all those kind of people that we don't want to be known as the person who left. But <laughs> we can leave in our mind or we can sleep when we don't really need sleep, but we just don't want to be there. And this is like the narrowing of the path. I, I often joke that we need a, a warning sign, especially for these retreats, because there's very little to get lost in, right? We're just asking you know, ourselves and each other. We're just being reminded to be aware. And we see these patterns acting themselves out. And then we see our reaction to these unpleasant patterns It's just more of the same. And it can feel like we're really trapped. But the nice thing is we begin to recognize that all of our habits of managing the unpleasantness of our habits, that's our habit, right? Using unskillful habits to manage the unpleasantness of our unskillful habits. That's samsara. And it can can freak us out a little but it can also inspire us to check out what the Buddha is saying and to put it into practice because we don't really see another way. We feel a little bit cornered, like, okay, I'm going to give this continuity of present moment awareness a shot. And then eventually we'll bump into moments where we have a little continuity and then the inevitable taste of freedom that comes from it. And we'll be so relieved that we'll grasp it and we'll lose it. But it won't matter because the moment before we grasp it, the mind learns something, right? That when the mind is relating with wholesome qualities, non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, what the heart has always sought, right? That release, putting down of the heavy burden, the release of the existential anxiety and that diminishes when these wholesome qualities are present. And it's good, you know, it's a lot of people don't like how the Buddha refers to often in the tradition refers to the wholesome qualities as not hatred, right? Not aversion, not greed, not delusion, non-delusion, But in some ways, I found it skillful and I really learned to appreciate this because if we put non-greed and we talk about generosity, see, then then we immediately have an image and we can use that image to beat ourselves up. We have the image of a me being generous and I'll never meet that image, right? Because it's a construction. So there's something about working with non-aversion instead of love. I mean, I think there are places for love and metta and these other concepts. But I find it really useful like to recognize, and I encourage you in your practice to not just be interested in comprehending greed and aversion and distraction, delusion, denial, but also to be seeing and comprehending 
non-greed, like, oh, like if you ask in a moment, is there any greed in the mind? And apparently there's not, right? Nothing comes into view. And then to be curious, like, oh, non-greed is like this, apparently. This is the mind heart with little greed or no greed. This is a heart mind free of aversion. And to get very familiar. No, we want to keep an open mind. There's none that's being seen or felt, right? But we're interested. So that we really get a sense, learn to taste the difference between a mind that is dominated, animated by greed, delusion, aversion, and a mind that apparently doesn't have that much greed anger and delusion animating it right now. I came across today the statement from Gail Fransdahl, some of you know him, a wonderful teacher, mostly on the West Coast. Um, But he calls greed and aversion the caffeine of the soul, right? It's really that. And the trouble is we've, we've gotten a little bit addicted to the intensity of greed and aversion, And as I mentioned earlier, it kind of helps uh, reestablish the sense of self that's very familiar because we've had the sense of self shaped by greed and aversion in the past, so it's become familiar. We we take that to be ourself, and we don't really know who we are without that shaping of greed and aversion. In one of Ajahn Sumedho's earlier books, He says something like, we all like the idea of peace and calm. But when we get peace and calm, it's like, this? I mean, I think there's some truth to that, like that sort of being settled. It's an acquired taste. Equanimity is an acquired taste. I don't think it's that like, oh, it's not really as good as we thought. It's that the um, sensitivities that we have is really gross. Like the reason intense anger and intense greed is, you know, feels safe and familiar is because the level of sensitivity, it's like we only feel things that are pretty gross. But when we cultivate more stability of awareness, we can appreciate something subtle like a mind that doesn't have much greed moving in it, a mind that doesn't have much aversion, a mind that's a lot like space. And even the body, we, I'm sure many of you have experienced, like sometimes the body feels like twisted steel. But there are other moments, surprisingly, where the body feels very light and it's the same body. It's like the injury didn't go away, the aged Joints didn't go away, but all of a sudden the body feels light and expansive. The mind feels light, expansive. Everything belongs, no fragmentations, no divisions. There's a kind of wholeness. In this, and in the opposite way, when there's greed and aversion operating in the mind, There's something heavy, there's something fragmented, there's something problematic, uneasy. 
And this is the territory just naturally we're learning to comprehend with more and more continuity of awareness, really getting a direct and immediate sense, I mean, of heaven and hell, basically. Like a mind, an unafflicted mind, unafflicted heart, and an afflictive heart. And instead of, it's like, as a naturalist, you know, we want to see the whole play of the place, the heart, the mind, right? We want to see the whole array of what unfolds. Oh, so this is hell. Oh, this is heaven. This is a heart relatively free of affliction. This is a heart that's really suffering. Because we, we always want to come back to the practice. We're not looking for the end. But only delusion is looking for the end of practice. Wisdom, like Saida Utejaniya says, wisdom is happy to just apply itself to causes. Setting emotion, wisdom, setting emotion, more wisdom, more peace, more non-greed, non-delusion, non-aversion, and undermining the unwholesome. I'll just end with a, a couple quotes that, um, because I, I, I think it really is hard to believe that awareness is enough. This wisdom awareness, I should say, is enough. This awareness that can comprehend what's skillful and unskillful. It just feels like we need some big move as opposed to this steady, persistent, recognizing this is being known and with enough continuity, sensing whether it's skillful qualities that are in the mind or unskillful qualities in the mind. And so we're directly, we're not trying to fix the mind. We're just seeing like if the mind is caught, we're seeing how it's caught. Now, we've all learned a lot of skillful interventions. Like when there's a lot of aversion, you bring in loving kindness. Or when there's greed, the mind's caught in greed, you reflect on how everything's impermanent, or you reflect on the thing that you're really desiring, isn't, you know, that there are, there's the other side of it. You know, it's all wonderful in this sense, but it's limited in this other sense. So there are all these skillful means, but we don't have to play those cards because just comprehending the way that it is, we'll see those skillful moves, Dharma moves coming in. We don't need to be the Dharma practitioner who needs to be skillful. We can just notice the way that it is. Okay, now it's like this. And so a quote from someone who used to teach at IMS a long time ago, Corrado Penza, mindfulness is an obstacle to our well-greased patterns of attachment and ignorance. And Jack Kornfield, another well-known teacher, In our tradition, mindfulness disturbs the tranquility of our ignorance. And the Buddha says, afflictions are only abandoned by wise seeing. And I'll end with this quote from the Buddha. It says, little rah-rah, you can do it, chant. Abandon what is unskillful. One can abandon what what is unskillful. If it were not possible... 
I would not ask you to do so. If this abandoning of the unskillful would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to abandon it. But as the abandoning of unskillful brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, abandon what is unskillful. Cultivate the good. You can cultivate the good. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. If this cultivation of the good would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to cultivate it. But as the cultivation of the good brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, cultivate the good. And we have our one tool, (laughs) right? Oh, it's like this. So let's just take a few moments, let go of the words. Thanks for listening, everyone. So we have about 30 minutes for movement practice. Come back at 9 o'clock for last sit together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.